Policy Podcast. Thanks for joining us for our conversation between joint state staffers about various policy topics in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about common interest ownership communities. I'm Susan Elder, and I'm here today with Glenn Passowitz, our executive director here at Joint State. Hello, Susan. And Brian DeWalt, who's our sound engineer and co-host. Hello, everyone. And finally, we have with us today Yvonne Hirsch, who is our chief counsel here at Joint State, as well as the project manager of this report. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us, Yvonne. Our first question is, what makes a CIOC, a common interest ownership community, different from a usual home? There are basically three kinds. There are condominium associations, there are cooperatives, and planned communities. One of the things they all share in common that you don't share with an individual home is that there is some piece of the real estate in some form that's owned in common by all the owners of the individual units within the community. The term CIOC is really not even used that heavily in the industry. It's very descriptive. So from a legal perspective, it describes exactly what you're looking at. There's a common interest among the owners of a community. These entities are generally governed by representatives of the owners. And it can be a condominium board, it can be a cooperative board, it can be a homeowners association, it can be a unit owners association. And so if you're looking at real estate listings, if you're Googling, you're not going to see CIOC as a way to describe whether or not the property you're looking to buy has any kind of encumbrances or any kind of shared responsibilities beyond the limits of the actual townhouse, apartment, cottage, or single family home that you're buying. And that will range from a very urban condo or co-op to a forest enclave of cabins around a lake. So it's not really an urban rural thing. It's more how much personal control do you want to maintain over where your home is located versus how much you're willing to give up to another group who can then maintain a certain level of security or aesthetics or property value. Well, that segues really well into my next question. If I buy a house, how will I know it's part of a CIOC? Well, when you get to closing, among the six inches of documents that you'll be asked to review at closing, and one of those documents will be a disclosure document saying that this property is part of a CIOC. And that's fine to have that disclosure in there, and it's appropriate, but it's usually after the ship has sailed because you've already done your home shopping, you've already looked around, you like the neighborhood, you like the schools. You've made the emotional and in a lot of cases, the financial commitment, putting a down payment or whatever on this property. And then as you're getting ready to sign all the documents and hand over the check from the mortgage company, you get the information about your homeowners association and the restrictions. There's nothing that requires disclosure in advance. 
probably your best way of finding out if it is a CIOC is from the realtors, because some people love the idea of common ownership community. It tends to keep your neighbors from like painting their house purple and chartreuse, and it gives more uniformity to the community. It can help support property values because all of the properties are subject to the same rules. They'll have similar landscaping, things like that. So overall, it can contribute to the aesthetics of the community. It's also a way of economic self-segregation, because if you're buying in a community, the range of prices for the house are not going to be huge. You're going to know that you're within a certain income range. And so that'll get advertised as part of the real estate listing that it's in an HOA. But there are other people who don't want HOAs at all. Some real estate listings will say, no HOA, there's no fees, there's nothing here. And, and people want that. So a lot of it, you'll find out through the advertising that there's something there. But again, you're not getting any particular disclosure documents or anything. You can ask the realtor to tell you about any homeowners association, but whether they're going to give you the bylaws, whether they're going to give you the information that you can look and see if this particular community says you can use three shades of beige on the exterior of your house from XYZ Paint Company, you may not know that till you've already bought the property. So that's one of our recommendations is you really have to disclose this stuff further in advance than at closing. So we've studied the topic of CIOCs before at Joint State. Why did the legislature ask for an update? It's been 10 years, so what's changed? Not much. I think that's part of why we are, because most of the recommendations we made in 2011 really didn't go anywhere. And they were all, not to toot our own horn, but they were all well thought out, thoughtful recommendations, and they really didn't go anywhere. The problems that come from not knowing how many are out there, not knowing what counties are in, not knowing what townships or boroughs are in, not having any kind of number on how many exist, which can drive all kinds of things, tax breaks, spending money for lead water line replacement, all of those kind of things. You need to know where everybody is so you can process those kind of grants and get that direct assistance to these communities. Because a lot of these communities are saying, we can't get access to state money on our own. We have to go through the municipality. And that really hasn't changed. So one of the things that was in the original recommendations was finding ways to help communities access those infrastructure funds, and we've got a big infrastructure act now that could have an impact on these communities, and finding ways to allow them to work with local government and work with state government to make the kind of improvements to their communities that a borough or a township can do on their own. And they don't have the ability to do that because they can't access some of the state and federal funding. But the other thing I think is the fact that they're not going away. There's more and more of them. I mean, we 
dug a lot deeper this time around than we did in 2011 on trying to find these communities. We came up with over 5,000 communities in the Commonwealth, and I can guarantee you that's not all of them. I know we didn't find them all. And this was a you know multi-month process of looking at multiple sources. You can't really even plan from a state perspective if you want to do any kind of funding program that would specifically assist in certain areas. If you don't know how many even exist and how you're going to figure out like a per diem per CIOC or by number of houses or units or whatever, when you don't know what's there. So having a registry, I think, would help both the state and the communities in making sure that when state dollars become available for different kinds of activities that are available in places that are not in associations, that they have the opportunity to access those funds and the state has the opportunity to include them. And right now it's it's just kind of messy. So following along with some of those sort of issues, what did you note are some of the biggest problems facing Pennsylvanians who are living in CIOCs? One of the issues that people run into with homeowners associations is just battling between the association and an individual homeowner who says, I don't want to pay for this amenity, or says, I want to do this with my property, and you're telling me I can't. I want to paint my house purple and chartreuse. Exactly. And so those kind of battles will come up because there are too many instances that you see in the news where homeowners get into disputes with their local association because the association is restricting activities and enforcing covenants, which are agreements to restrict different things about the land. And the homeowners are fighting it because they didn't realize they had signed on for the number of restrictions that come with it. But there are other people who seek to be in these private communities and to be in a gated community. And because they also think it's more secure to be in that kind of place. One of the things that we saw with communities that have their own security service is that they're not really police. There's sometimes uncertainty as to what the security for the community is actually legally allowed to do to enforce state law within the community and to enforce the rules and the bylaws of the association. So that can be a touchy point occasionally. I mean, the one that always intrigued me was was the gated communities where you had like a key card pass. I'm like, well, how do people get in if there's, you know, an emergency? But the associations have provided ways for EMS to access the community and for those kind of services. And a lot of the places, like if the kids are are riding public school buses, they'll just have a bus stop at the entrance to the association rather than have the buses drive all around the community. 
So they've worked it out for the most part. When we started the study, that always intrigued me was like, well, if it's gated and it has key card access, how do you get in there? There were very technological answers to the gate question. In addition to codes that the call centers are provided with, some of the gates are designed open to specialized horns or sirens that the EMS vehicles have in the event of a crisis. Yvonne, as you're talking about the different maybe amenities and things that people are looking for, obviously it costs some money. Did the report find any figures about annual dues and what it costs homeowners to live in an association or a CIOC? There's no centralized data on basically anything about CIOCs, but what we found looking at them is it can range massively. You can live in a community where the only thing they do that you pay in common for is snow removal, lawn care, maybe sidewalk repair or something. And they can have a fairly nominal fee. Sometimes they're annual, more likely they're monthly, but it it could be, you know, $15, $20 a month. But then you can also be in a condominium and you see that in Philadelphia and the suburban counties where your condo fees can be a couple thousand dollars a month because they're including your utilities, they're including maintenance of the building, but there's no requirement as to how much it should be and how much you should have set aside for major repairs. If you have a reserve account, then Pennsylvania law talks about how you have to disclose it and keep the records, but there's no requirement that you have a reserve account. So if a disaster happens and there's a really expensive repair that has to be done at the community and you don't have a reserve account and your monthly dues are not a lot, you can end up owing tens of thousands of dollars for a major repair that's assessed against every single homeowner. There was an instance a couple years ago where there was an old dam that was part of a development that was failing. And a DEP said, you either have to fix this or drain the lake. And because of the way some of the community actually post-dated the dam, the assessment for repairing the dam was split between the community and then I think one or two individual homeowners. And one of those homeowners was assessed $80,000 to repair this dam. There really wasn't a reserve to support that. And they ultimately ended up draining the dam. So there's no longer a little lake in this community because it was too expensive. And you see, that's what happened in Florida when that condo collapsed. They were not putting aside money and they weren't maintaining the infrastructure, the concrete, the actual physical building parts of that condominium. And they knew they weren't in good shape, but they didn't have the money and they couldn't get it in assessments. And ultimately that condo collapsed and a hundred people died. So one of the things we recommended is that everybody have a reserve account and it doesn't have to be a fixed amount based on the kind of services you provide 
and that you have those accounts reviewed by an independent CPA on a regular basis so that they would be more prepared and you wouldn't get slammed with these big assessments in the middle of something going wrong. I mean, some of these communities have recreational facilities, they have lakes, they have pools, they have clubhouses, and all of that is paid for by the dues they collect from the homeowners. And if they're not setting aside a reserve, then when something major goes wrong, every single homeowner has to pitch in substantially. You mentioned reserve accounts and then conducting audits of the reserve accounts. What would be the process for the audits? Who would set that up or pay for that? Could you explain to us a little bit of that recommendation? 99% of the CIOC boards are organized as nonprofits. The associations are organized as nonprofits. They have a nonprofit board. The board would be responsible for having the financial review done. And I mean, there are different levels. Um, There's a review, there's a full audit. And in the world of nonprofits in general, Pennsylvania Corporations Bureau, depending on how much income you have, you have an obligation as part of your nonprofit status and renewal to have financials presented, and it's based on the income of the entity. So if your nonprofit only has like $10,000 in income coming through every year, you don't even have to file those financials with the state. So the level of review is triggered by how much money you're taking in to the nonprofit, but it would be the obligation of the board to find somebody to do that. And there are accounting agencies that specialize in nonprofits and doing those kind of financial reviews. We talked about, and I think Brian, you did some of the research on this, is the the project that was initiated a few years ago to give every property a street address and number that yeah, the 911 people can find you, know where to send the fire department, know where to send EMS. That project's been ongoing. I want to say Montour County, which is where I'm originally from, I think almost everybody got a new house number. Even though their street didn't change, they got a house number and all the rural routes were given street names and the houses given numbers. So the 911 system would be able to direct emergency services in a timely manner. So that was like a big thing. And that was something with some of the bigger associations, they had to go in and their boards would then coordinate with the homeowners and help get this whole process underway to do that. So... Are there parts of Pennsylvania, places in Pennsylvania, where they're more common than other places, or are they spread fairly evenly around? They are in the Pittsburgh suburbs. They're in Philadelphia and the Philadelphia suburbs. There's a pretty large concentration in the Pocono region, a lot of vacation homes, and whether they're on a lake or at a ski resort 
or something like that. So they're there. The, the middle of the state, especially the north central part of the state, there are hardly any. You get to state college. State college has a little cluster of their own. And I think that's because you have you know so much student housing. And when you get out into some of the more hinterland type areas, if there is a university in that area, the town the university is in will have condos. A lot of them are rentals, but you can also buy them. But it's really, like I said, the Pocono region, part of its vacation home, part of it is New York City sprawling outwards. Like I think it was Pike County that had a huge leap in the number of people and they had to expand their schools and those kind of things because of New York spreading out into Pike County, which you normally think of as a rural county, not so much anymore. And then you have York and Adams County, lots and lots near the border where you're getting that DC Baltimore suburban sprawl. And, and then you have places around Pittsburgh, like there's one little corner Outside of Pittsburgh, it's Cranberry Township, it's Adams Township. There's like three or four little townships where it's just every other road has an association in it. And it's really a big thing in those areas. But no, there are, I want to say there are eight or 10 counties that don't have any at all. And again, I go back to Montour County, which is our smallest county because they are the headquarters of Geisinger Health System, they do have a couple of common ownership interest places, townhouse condos, things like that. But if you don't have, we call them anchor institutions in broadband. If there's an anchor institution in a community, then you're probably going to have some condos, some townhomes. But if you're just your basic run-of-the-mill rural community, you're not going to have that. You might have an enclave that started out as like four neighbors with their hunting cabins, and they decided to form an association. Lancaster County has a lot. But again, you're getting into that Harrisburg-Philadelphia kind of merging together so can I return to an issue you were talking about a little while ago? You talked about identifying CIOCs and just the difficulty of that process. And you mentioned identifying anchor institutions as sometimes being a good indication that there might be some CIOCs in the area. Were there other things that you used? Were there other ways that you collected the data on how many CIOCs you could find or you were identifying in the Commonwealth? We went to CAI, which is the trade group that represents builders, developers, persons involved in common interest ownership communities. And they have a database that it had a couple thousand in it. I think they had identified over 2,000 communities that were self-reported by their members. We also went through the Corporations Bureau database and did searches for every combination of ways we could think of to name or describe a community. 
And we kind of merged those two together and tried to get rid of duplicate entries. But part of the problem with all of that is approval of the developments is going to list the developer's name. It's going to have a registered address that's probably the developers. It may or may not be in the municipality or even the county that the development is actually going to be in. So the bigger issue was identifying what counties and what municipalities they were in because their addresses are going to show up on the Corporations Bureau where their registered office is. And that's just whoever's in charge of the paperwork. Another thing is a development may have one name when it's first approved but then it might morph into another name when it finally gets finished, depending on how many stages it was in. Some of them are all done like in a year. Some of them, the plan may be for 80 homes, but it, it may be staggered in phases. So if you just try to go to the counties and not all counties list them to their records of the development, you're not always able to tell how many exist now and how many are planned for the future. So we tried also looking at the developer's declarations, which is where they will put in what municipality, what county, how many homes they anticipate building, those kind of things. But you can't always find them. Some counties will have a list. Center County has a nice list that you can access of those. Sometimes real estate firms We'll have a list, property management firms that are providing these shared services. Sometimes we'll have a list of associations in the Pittsburgh area. There's a number of property management companies who have really good websites that you can find all of these associations, but otherwise you can't. And honestly, where we actually ended up doing the proof of our list trying to make sure we didn't miss any more than we had to was to go through real estate listings, go through some of the realtor websites where you can search by county and you can search for condominiums or you can search for single family homes and and then look at the listings and see if they're a homeowners association. My husband's like, what are you doing? You're a lawyer and you're looking at real estate listings. That sounds so time intensive, Yvonne. It was, but I mean, how are you going to find them? We looked at HUD. HUD has listing of developments that are approved for FHA or VA funding, but a lot of them don't make the effort to be qualified for that kind of funding because the building standards are more demanding and more complicated and generally more expensive. So you can go through them and they'll have a list of each county. Here's all of the housing arrangements that we've approved for our funding. So there are there are databases out there, but none of them are complete. And even going through the real estate listings, they had to be for sale to find them. If they weren't for sale, we weren't going to find them. So that's why I say, I know even though we identified 5,000, I know there's more out there. And part of it you run into as well, because I've really been 
mentally, as we're talking about this, focusing on new construction type things. But there are some that were, Pennsylvania has had a condominium law since the 1950s. And then cooperatives have been out there for forever. There aren't a lot of cooperatives, but they're also not easy to find. And then, of course, there are the housing developments. Some of the really, really old ones just kind of eventually petered out. So part of it, too, is you you want to list ones that are in existence still, that are active still, so that it's not just a historical record of every association that ever existed. So yeah, I spent a lot of time reading real estate listings. Okay, so to prevent having to do all of this intense searching again, we do recommend the creation of a CIOC registry. What agency should they register with, and at what point in the process should this happen? I think they should register with community and economic development. They already have municipal and county tax databases. If you hire a new employee, and Susan, as our comptroller, can uh, attest to this, if you hire a new employee and you're trying to figure out their local tax rate, you just go to DCED and you type in the property address and you type in the employer's address, and it will pull up a chart that shows you what the local withholding should be, school district and municipality and all of them, and, and we'll tell you combined rate. So it makes withholding for local income tax a lot easier than trying to figure out where this person is. So you can use that database. And so to my mind, if they have a database that basically lists every property in the Commonwealth for purposes of telling you what the local withholding income tax rate is, they should be able to just plug in the homeowner's registration as part of that. So I think they make sense because they already have that. That's a clever place to potentially house that. I think when the developer files their declaration with the county, they should file the registration and then they should be required to update it. We require periodic updates to the Corporations Bureau for every corporation in the Commonwealth, whether you're changing your bylaws or your articles or anything else, you still have to do these periodic updates to verify that you're in existence and you're still active. And so I think something similar to that for the Homeowners Association, they should be required to provide an update when there are changes to the association, like when the developer turns it over to the homeowners, and then just any significant changes or just a status report that says we're still in existence and nothing's changed. And, and I don't think they have to provide a lot of information on the registry. I think where they are, what their local taxing authorities are, because some of these developments are so big, they're in multiple municipal jurisdiction. So they can be in two or three townships. So depending on where you live in that development, your taxes go to a different municipality. So I think the physical location, the tax, local taxing authorities, and maybe just how many units are in the association. And if it's one that's growing and expanding, when you provide your next status report, you report that we've added 
60 units or 80 units or whatever. And honestly, I know that they're doing this at the county level to a degree with local planning commissions, but good luck finding that information in a lot of places. Short of going to the courthouse and actually going through all of those records by hand, because also a lot of counties do not have their, especially older records, in any kind of database that is computer accessible. So if you really want to be able to know where they are, and I think that is important for coordinating with state and local government, then they need to be providing accurate information on a regular basis. So the report recommends changes to the Uniform Common Interest Ownership Act. Can you speak more about that? We're recommending the General Assembly should look at it because there have been issues within Pennsylvania and there has been proposed legislation in Pennsylvania that tries to address the battles that occur between homeowners associations and property owners. And the bulk of that piece of uniform legislation deals with those kind of issues, board structure, board elections. But we've had legislation enacted that deal with board homeowner relations. And there has been more that's been proposed. And this Uniform Act is geared at those kind of issues. So so we think that from the perspective of if the General Assembly is already considering the question of how to deal with these kind of tensions, that the Uniform Act may be a good way to go to address that. It's time for us to wrap up our conversation today. If you would like more information from our study on common interest ownership communities, please check out the link to the report on our website in the show notes. The music for our podcast is provided by Joseph McDade. Thanks and have a nice day.